Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. In a rising rate environment along with fears of a possible recession, is property your best inflation hedge? Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast series Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. I'm Roy Athanasius Ang and today I am joined by our in-house specialist in Asian financials and real estate, Chua Jenai, a Singapore-based research analyst here at Julius Baer. Jenai, let's jump straight into the heart of the matter, real estate. Just how much protection can it give against inflation? Well, Roy, as it turns out, quite a lot. Because over the long run, REIT returns have not only kept pace with inflation, they have returned more than inflation. And this is even when inflation was driven by the oil shocks of the early 1970s and 80s. Through the whole cycle, we believe well-managed, prudently capitalised REITs should be able to deliver returns of 8-12%, to which is well above that of inflation. This is because REIT business models enjoy a few inherent advantages in an inflationary environment. So first of all, the rents are often linked to inflationary measures or have step-ups embedded. And with more than 90% of taxable earnings distributed to investors, most of these gains in rents are also passed on to investors. Secondly, the value of debt that they have taken on may be eroded by inflation, although the higher interest rates associated with inflation could also imply higher interest payments. And in this respect, REITs with long-dated fixed-rate debt should be better placed than those with near-term financing risk. And thirdly, as landlords, REIT returns tend to be based on a return on capital employed model. This means that real estate simply generates rent with few or no costs. And in an inflationary environment, the real estate earnings simply rise by inflation. Interesting. So given these advantages you've just shared on REITs, Would you say real estate is a better inflation hedge than the wider stock market? Mm -hmm. We've got some data from the US there. So looking at the performance of US REITs relative to the US equity market, the US REITs do tend to outperform the wider market when inflation exceeds 2%. But interestingly, when inflation rises above 4%, the likelihood of excess outperformance declines. I think this would suggest an inflation sweet spot of about 2 to 4%. And any higher, this could be an indication of distress in the wider economy. Any lower, the inflationary benefits are lost. Right. If listed real estate investments can provide decent inflation protection in the long run, what are your thoughts on physical real estate? Do they provide the same sort of hedge? So Roy, according to MSCI, uh, global physical real estate has delivered a 7.4% annual return over the past five years as of the end of 2021. And just in the last 12 months, uh, private real estate returns were about 13%, industrial 33%, residential 14%, office 7% and retail at around 5%. Well, with such figures, I guess it's no surprise that residential property is such a popular asset class yes, for investors. Mm-hmm. But in the current context with the prospect of slowing growth and rising interest rates, what's the outlook like for the next 6 to 12 months? So in Singapore, which is arguably one of the hottest residential property markets right now, private residential prices rose 3.2% Q on Q in Q2 of this year, with public housing prices also resilient at about 3%. 
We expect rising rates to temper buyer sentiment, although average selling prices are likely to remain firm given record low inventories. Just to illustrate how interest rates have gone up, new fixed mortgage rates are now offered at a between 2.75 to 3%, while floating rates are in the region of about 2.3 to 2.5%. And these are more than 100 bips what they were in Q1 of this year. I think the perception of Singapore property as a safe haven asset is also reflected by the increased appetite in large purchases from well-heeled overseas buyers. So just to give you a few examples, the most recent was the purchase of 20 units in newly launched Canning Hill Piers, that's in Clark Key, by a Chinese buyer for over 85 million Sing dollars, and the sale of an entire office floor in Suntec City Tower 2 for about 40 million Sing dollars to a Chinese permanent resident. Hmm. So if that's for Singapore, what about Hong Kong? What's the situation there like? In Hong Kong, the new chief executive, John Lee, has expressed a preference for stable home prices. And I think this should reassure investor concerns of draconian policies being implemented. In his manifesto, he pledged that land production would be accelerated and he's pushing forward several projects to increase housing supply long term. We've seen both primary and secondary property transaction volumes bounce back strongly, while secondary prices have steadied, and new launch prices did not really see a material correction. But as mentioned with Singapore, I think the increase in Hong Kong prime rates will be a key test for 2023, and this should be mitigated by some extent to the huge supply deficit built up since 2005, which should help to prevent a large drop in Hong Kong home prices. I think there have been a lot of headlines on Hong Kong's declining population and Hong Kong's population has indeed decreased by 117,000 people in the last two years. However, we do believe a pickup in immigration from mainland China should be able to fill the gap. For instance, non-local students, about two-thirds of whom are from mainland China, have enrolled into Hong Kong tertiary institutions at a rate of about 8% growth per annum in the last three years. So what I'm hearing is that residential properties outlook appear to remain firm even in the current context. Mm, Which leads me to think about property developers. Would they be a good investment at this stage? Well, developers are quite a different kettle of fish. Developers, especially the residential developers, tend to be more of a margin business than is real estate investment. And they require a degree of working capital. So we've got studies going back the past 40 years showing that uh, Hong Kong and Singapore developers' real returns did come under pressure during the inflationary periods of the early 70s and early to mid-1980s. Jenna, let's move away from residential real estate investments and talk about commercial properties. Sure. How have they been doing and can they provide a hedge against inflation? Well, industrial property historically outperforms with inflation of around 2%, but does less well beyond this. The pattern is less clear for office versus retail. Historically, retail does slightly better as inflation rises. The narrative recently has, however, been complicated by reopening in many parts of Asia and the return to offices by workers. Singapore office rental momentum has been particularly strong. Central business district rents are up about 2.7% Q on Q to sing $10.74 per square foot per month in Q2. This is the fifth straight quarter of increase and rents are now just a shade below the pre-pandemic peak that was recorded in Q4 of 2019. Sorry, Jenna, just to interrupt you there, you shared that there is a strong momentum for Singapore office-based rental. But I recently read a report that a large international bank with a hub in Singapore was planning to drastically reduce its office space rental in the city. And I assume they aren't alone. Now, with many firms adopting flexi-work arrangements and hot desking for staff, 
Won't this impact the demand for office space? Well, Roy, you are certainly well informed about developments here. And uh, it's true that it is indeed the case that a number of international banks, for example, Standard Chartered, have given up space in anticipation of a smaller office footprint associated with uh, hybrid working arrangements. We've also got DBS, uh, Singapore's largest local bank, returning two and a half floors or 75,000 square feet of space in its current office in line with this. Now, what's actually less well-known is the fact that some of these banks giving up space have actually taken them back as headcount increases. Oh. For instance, uh, with transfers from Hong Kong. So increased demand is, to a certain degree, filling the gap left by firms rationalising space. Of course, in the long run, ascertaining whether hybrid working will be a permanent feature of the post-COVID world will take time. Anecdotally, culturally, working from office is something that's quite entrenched in Asian society and can be hard to change. So we've got research from property broker CBRE indicating that for Asian companies, 38% of companies expect their workers in office full-time and 24% expect them to be there most of the time. Whereas in the US, only 5% expect staff to be in office full-time and 32% most of the time. Quite and a difference there. Yeah, it is. And you know, on the first day, Goldman Sachs expected employees to work from its US offices full-time. Only half of staff showed up. So let's say employees win this work-from-home, work-from-office tug-of-war with employers and get to work remotely more often. Would this be the end of office spaces? Mm, I think not necessarily. Um, workspace density may now need to decrease to allow increased social distancing. And quality space has always been used as a magnet for talent and will always be in demand. So what we believe is that there'll be a polarisation within the market through a flight to quality. Of course, there'll be roles that may not be carried out at home for security or insurance purposes. And these would suggest that offices, in particular the prime grade A quality buildings, will remain very much relevant even in this brave new world. And capital values of quality commercial assets should appreciate over time, reflecting these firm fundamentals and creating a buffer against inflation. Now, besides the ability to preserve and even grow capital values, how else can commercial properties provide investors with a buffer as prices rise? Well, Roy, inflation is a bit of a double-edged sword for landlords because on the one hand, higher inflation gives them the opportunity to reprice rents in line with rising inflation, especially for those with shorter weighted average lease expiries. However, cost inflation, especially utility costs, do pose downside risks to net property income margins and distributions. Having said that, there are mitigating factors. So firstly, landlords do bulk purchases on electricity or contracts that fixes utility costs for some time. And this will delay the immediate impact on rising electricity costs until the contract is up for renewal. And secondly, utility costs are borne by end tenants in certain asset classes, for example, data centres, given the high power consumption. And for overseas assets, there may be different lease structures. Finally, there is room to offset rising utility costs by cutting back on other operating expenses or passing them on via raising service charges. So Jenna, where would you say is the best hiding place in the commercial space? Within commercial, we do like uh, logistic REITs the most. I think Amazon's announcement earlier this year that it's, to quote them, no longer chasing physical capacity has hurt the share price performance and sentiment regarding logistic plays. But this means that they're also now trading at a sizable discount to their long-run valuations. 
Now, notwithstanding Amazon's comments, we do believe that fundamentally, demand in this sector still remains strong. And this is buoyed by continued e-commerce penetration, reshoring and supply chain diversion. Of course, gearing is also something to watch and gearing for many of the quality blue chip players in this sector is very manageable. Compared to other commercial asset classes, I think the warehouse sector, which is uh, mainly ambient warehouses, is likely to be the most shielded from higher operating and utility expenses due to their efficient footprint. For example, they have minimal common areas. Okay, let's round up our discussion with some thoughts on the risks of investing in the property sector. What could go wrong and what are some of the potential risks investors should be aware of? That's a very good question, Roy. I think uh, physical property is definitely an e-liquid asset class and capital committed may have to be invested for a considerable period of time. Policy risks via cooling measures that can be implemented very suddenly and with very short notice is also something that's quite unique to property that bears watching. So in its latest significant cooling exercise, the Singapore authorities made announcements at close to midnight on the 15th of December last year. And that was basically to increase additional buyer stamp duties and lower the loan-to-value as well as total debt servicing ratios. And all of these were supposed to take effect the very next day. Of course, rising interest rates is a risk for all property segments and has to be managed carefully given the many impacts that it can have. So these range from declining capital values of properties as cap rates creep up, the inability of borrowers to service interest payments, and the impact to valuations that higher interest rates are likely to have on property-related bonds and equities. So Roy, our mantra is always to continue to stick with quality plays that are better able to hold their value and deliver returns through the ups and downs of economic cycles. Well, thank you, Jenai, for sharing your insights with us. If I may quickly summarise what you've just shared, listed real estate investments can provide decent inflation protection in the long run and potentially even outperform the stock market when inflation is at the 2 to 4% sweet spot. And likewise, for physical real estate in Singapore and Hong Kong, even in the current economic climate and outlook, it does appear that prices are likely to remain resilient. Dear listeners, now that's all the time we have for today and we hope you have enjoyed this podcast. On behalf of all of us here at Julius Bear, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, take care and goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Bear, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.